Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and for this episode, I am your sole host. That's right, I'm here all by myself. I invited my colleagues, I invited my Pathcast hosts. I said to Eddie, please come on this show with me. You even wrote on this book. I said to Danielle, you contributed to the original they came from. Don't you have something to say? And I said to Dixie, your work on Beyond the Grave was utterly invaluable. Don't you have any words to contribute to this podcast? No, no, okay, no, all right, gone. And so I was left here, so I, I then went outside the typical podcast milieu. I went to Rich, I went to uh, people who have written for the book. Every single one of them said, no, and it's not the game, it's you, Matthew. We don't want to spend time with you. So, I've decided to take that as my <laughs> crucible and record all by myself. Not really. I love to sow the seeds of drama. I love the idea that there is something going on in the background when really we all, by and large, seem to get on pretty damn well and work together well. But, as they came from, the RPG Anthology was a game I developed and they came from as a game line that I oversee as an in-house developer... It felt correct that I do this sort of diary, more of a retrospective than a diary, because to give you a bit of a peek behind the curtain, to use a theatrical term, of course, the uh, the, the process of developing They Came From The RPG Anthology had me recording short audio diaries in bursts all the way from, from conception to writing to Redline's development and the... Uh, success of Kickstarter, and successful Kickstarter too, and along with the discussion of stretch goals, all kinds of things. Now, I intended, of course, to have all of these recorded on tiny micro-cassettes, scatter them about the place I live, so that upon my death, like in Bioshock, some intrepid investigator would find all of them and have to piece them together to form a puzzle. Uh, but, sadly... Uh, it is unlikely I'm going to die soon. Uh, well, at least one one can hope. Uh, and no one came looking. Plus, what I found upon listening to those uh, recordings is I repeated a lot of information from time to time because developing a book is quite a lengthy process. And what's more, the runtime ended up quite significantly longer than the average Onyx podcast because, as you know, when I start talking it is quite difficult for me to stop. So, that means we get a retrospective instead. I've listened to all of the diary entries, and I've made notes, which is a rarity for me, and I'm talking to you after the fact. I'm going to talk to you about the process of creating They Came From The RPG Anthology, and the They Came From line more generally, hoping that I provide some interesting insights that may have not been discussed before. These will range from everything from the choice of system through to choices made for RPG anthology in terms of genre inclusion, and of course the exciting polls that resulted in my favourite, they came from Dawkins Creek, not being included in the game. That was uh, suggested by a fan, by the way. I didn't come up with They Came From Dawkins Creek. It was when the various genres were being debated among backers of the Kickstarter. Dawkins Creek came up and I thought, this is amazing, we have to do it. And it turns out the vast majority of customers disagreed. <laughs> Which seems to be my, my way in, in the RPG industry, unfortunately. Now... Let's travel back, back, back to 2017-18, thereabouts, when we started work on They Came From Beneath the Sea, which, as we know, is our B-movie sci-fi 1950s era they came from. Beneath the Sea uh, was my initial pitch because, as people probably all know by now, initially They Came From was influenced by a number of sources, but predominantly from a serious aspect. The reason I wanted to do an aquatic horror game was based on my love of XCOM Terror from the Deep. A, uh, the original XCOM UFO Enemy Unknown sequel uh, and so one that hasn't seen a remake. Uh, I guess just because it's a more difficult version of UFO en Enemy Unknown. But anyway, I loved that game. I did Let's Plays of that game on my YouTube channel. I spent an inordinate amount of time playing it, not realising that the game was bugged to hell. And the reason I was having to spend an inordinate amount of time playing it was because I had locked myself out from completing it. Now, 
I wanted to make a serious aquatic horror game, and that's the game I playtested in numerous places, including the UK Games Expo somewhere around 2008, I want to say, maybe even earlier than that. It turned out to not be very good, and it was an incredibly granular, mechanically heavy, not at all interesting game that I did remember I spoke to a lot of people when I had a very active YouTube channel and lots of ideas were thrown at me that I incorporated without consideration. It became cumbersome and not terribly fun, but still attached to the idea of maritime horror. The other place those uh, themes emerge quite strongly is in 1950s B-movies, which I've also loved for a long, long time, since childhood, really, where I was exposed to an awful lot of uh, black and white, Cold War era, sort of Red Scare, alien invasion movies. And so, well, I'm not that old, but uh, my, uh, my one of my uncles had a whole collection of recordings of these things that I'd watch every single weekend. So, yeah. Uh, I had a big influence there. But also, as mentioned previously, I'm a big fan of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I was a huge fan of the Batman TV series in the 1960s. And how those converged is because I ran a game of DC Heroes, where if you use things like the cards I created of pow, zap, bang, wank, and so on, as onomatopoeia to accentuate your attacks, you would gain bonus dice to your attack. Plus, I ran an all-flesh-must-be-eaten game using Garth Marenghi's Dark Place as a uh, an influence. All-flesh-must-be-dark place was its name for a Halloween special for my local role-playing club, where if you quoted the characters and gave their one-liners, they would gain additional bonuses. Now, all of these things sort of converged. I love camp, I love horror, I love my aquatic menaces... And I love the Cold War, too. Uh, I absolutely love it. It wasn't scary at all. And all of that came together for my final pitch, which was to Rich Thomas at, I think, the Grand Masquerade in New Orleans. I think that's where it took place. Now, yes, yes, it was. Uh... I had other influences too. Huge fan of the Larry Blameyer movies, and of course he came to work on numerous of the uh, They Came From books, and uh, still does work for us to this day. And uh, along with Rift Tracks, MST3K, and even shows online like Red Letter Media, which I'm a big fan, the idea that you can be respectful, even reverential of subject matter and still critique it, still parody it, still make jokes about it is something incredibly important to me. Has been, I think, ever since, again, another movie staple that I fell in love with quite young were the Naked Gun movies. Any Zucker Brother movies, really, uh, Hot Shots as well, Top Secret, Airplane, of course... Any movie where you can play things straight, as Leslie Nielsen tends to do, especially in Airplane, and yet have absolutely ludicrous scenes taking place behind you, seem like a good idea to me for a game. And so, the pitch was accepted by Rich. We made a deal, and I went on to develop Beneath the Sea. And of course, from Beneath the Sea, we had Beyond the Grave, and then Beyond the Grave led to Camp Myrtle Lake, and we had Classified, and Cyclops's Cave, and coming soon, we have... Uh, let's see, they came from the Danger Zone, they came from the Witchford Academy, and of course they came from the RPG Anthology. It may well even be that I've missed some on that road, because we've done a lot of They Came From. So I don't know the figures exactly, but it could well be that They Came From has been the best supported line that Onyx Path has put out over the last five years. Uh, and I know that this is conjecture, I've never confirmed compared the numbers honestly but it feels like because we've done source books for every they came from line it would probably be up there and i don't think a lot of people really consider that i think a lot of people look at they came from and think well this is just a silly game uh, i can't run comedy games when people role play at my table they want a deep immersive experience and the idea of playing something purely for fun and entertainment is a waste of our time, to which I say absolutely nonsense, but, you know, you're welcome to your tastes, even if they're wrong. <laughs> and they came from can, of course, easily be 
turn into a serious game. And part of the idea that sort of hinged on that or balanced on that, the head of that pin, was when Rich and I were having initial discussions about They Came From Beneath the Sea, we were talking about the system we should use. And the initial system I had in mind after my initial XCOM-style playtest was something incredibly simple, very D6-based, uh, and that would have played entirely into the light-hearted nature of the game. It wouldn't be mechanically heavy at all. But something we both agreed upon at the time, and I don't think was a mistake at all, was in order to ease people into this game, make it not feel like something that is just a complete novelty, it made sense, made sense to use the nascent story path system that we were currently deploying in games like Trinity, Scion, and Dystopia Rising Evolution. And I spent the time, I examined the system, I played around with it, tried to find out is it a system you can basically pick up and put down easily, does it interfere with gameplay? Because that was the most important question to me as developer. Was this a system that would interfere with gameplay and drain the fun out of it? Because I have played plenty of RPG systems that do that. Hell, the system I used for my very first They Came From playtest was that. And I found out, no, I really enjoyed Story Path. I found it an upgrade to Storyteller and Storytelling and what's more, it served double duty. You could add sort of bolt-ons, if you like, to use a rather archaic phrase now, uh, alarmingly, to Story Path without breaking the system. And so that's how quips came in. That's how cinematics came in. And you could very easily make comparisons between cinematics and uh, dramatic editing, or directorial control and dramatic editing. And uh, you could use trademarks instead of specialties, and so on and so forth. There was a lot of cross-pollination that existed between They Came From and the other Story Path games, and that was intentional. I wanted a system that was a system for all seasons, and most importantly, if you did want to play They Came From in a serious way, a serious sci-fi game, or a serious horror game, or whatever your They Came From genre is, Story Path is no obstruction to that. In fact, it facilitates it. Danielle Lauzon, who you know, I'm sure, as one of the co-hosts of the uh, Onyx Pathcast, as well as being one of my fellow in-house developers, a wonderfully talented individual, uh, was our first system writer for They Came From, if memory serves, and then went on, of course, to write uh, the StoryPath Ultra system, which has subsequently appeared in They Came From the RPG Anthology, so there's some nice connective tissue there too. Anyway, uh, during the course of the They Came From life, I suppose, going from Beneath the Sea, Beyond the Grave, etc., etc., all the way up to RPG Anthology, there were always genres that we felt never really justified the existence of an entire core book, or were too problematic to explore as a core book. That was less of an issue, uh, but I'll get on to it again shortly. Uh, the genres I was always fascinated by exploring included noir, because I'm a big noir fan. As you can probably tell, and you'll be able to pick up repeatedly during this podcast, I'm a big fan of a lot of genres. Uh, I watch a lot of movies, I watch probably too much TV, and I li love theatre as well. Performance is very much my jam, as they say especially if it's got a strong story or captivating characters. If anything, characters draw me in more than story, which is probably why every game I run is absolutely filled with NPCs and players are obliged to make lists of everyone they've ever encountered. So, yeah, I wanted to explore noir, I wanted to explore westerns, big fan of the spaghetti westerns. Uh, I had this idea for doing murder mysteries as well. And... None of them really justified the existence of an entire core book, honestly. But what they could do is justify the existence of an anthology book, which initially was just called They Came From, dot, 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 exclamation mark. And that felt very much like a new edition. And I don't think the game is ready for a new edition yet as such. Uh, this book, RPG Anthology, feels more like a culmination of ideas than the spawning of new ones. Now, I'll use this moment to say, I don't know what the future that they came from holds. Obviously, I hope that people keep buying it, 
the fact is we still have to get classified and Cyclops' cave as of time of recording out to store shelves and we have more books coming beside that including RPG Anthology so it's a bit early to signal the death knell or indeed call this book a new edition but RPG Anthology was a good way of profiling game or movie, TV, theatre, performance genres that we hadn't had the opportunity to explore and couldn't justify exploring before now. And I think we've done it really well. Uh, as mentioned, I recorded lots of diaries during the process of the development and the one thing that you will sadly miss, I think, in this long-form retrospective is my being able to look back on all of those with the excitement that I had when these things were initially being written. Believe me, I'm not the I'm not really someone who jumps up and down in my chair and goes all yee about things. I, I don't do that. So, anyway, uh, there was another thing I wanted to explore in RPG Anthology, and that was a condensing or streamlining of the system. Now, we had two conflicting views going in here. Because, as we knew, we knew StoryPath Ultra was being developed, it had just been applied to the manuscript for the world below when RPG Anthology was being uh, written, and so I wanted to use the upgrades from Ultra in RPG Anthology, and yet something I was keenly aware of and had become increasingly aware of during They Came From's life was the parts of the story path system that They Came From players and story guides or directors in this game's case weren't actually using or were using very much seldomly. Ultra, which is a streamlined, improved version of StoryPath, was still, I dare say it, not streamlined enough for they came from. I think the core of StoryPath and Ultra is still absolutely perfect for they came from. Uh, it's very familiar, it puts players at ease, it makes them think this isn't just some gimmick game, but there are certain aspects of the game that I didn't think is necessary to the kind of narrative nonsense play that they came from tends to pursue. That then posed the question, which do we go for? Do we go for Story Path Ultra or do we go for some kind of streamlined version? Can we put both in or will it cause confusion? And in the end we did decide to go for both. There was a good reason for this, though I'd be damned if I remember what it was. No, uh, the good reason was once again the idea that They Came From does not have to be played as a one-shot game where people are just messing about. Now, I love They Came From one-shots where people are just messing about. Believe me, I've run more of those than I have They Came From campaigns. But I have also run They Came From campaigns, and They Came From campaigns tend to benefit from a more robust system. So, the first thing we did was invent the quick play system. I wrote this, part of They Came From, based on my findings from numerous play tests, and some of them weren't play tests by design, they were just me running or playing the game and discovering certain aspects of it, and really paring down the parts of the game that would no longer be needed. Those parts of the game still exist in the ether, and they of course still exist in all the prior they came from core books, and so can very easily be incorporated into they came from the RPG anthology. But for they came from the RPG anthology's first chapter appearance, which I would love to see spread across just two pages, and boom, there's your quick play system. I thought, let's make this as simplistic as possible. Dice pools, quips, cinematics. Here's how you do combat and other encounters. Go. I think that is a nice, simple way. It covers everything you need in They Came From in a way that things like... And these are aspects I love of story parts, don't get me wrong. Things like status effects, area effects, or well, conditions, as they used to be called, of course. Uh, stunts, and so on. And tricks, as they are called now didn't see much play in They Came From. People liked the tools they could easily reach out to. Stunts are a very good example of this. And they, it actually speaks to how we present information in not just They Came From, but all of our games. People were always much quicker to reach out to use a cinematic than they were to purchase a stunt or combat trick, again, as it is now in Story Path Ultra. 
And I think part of that was just accessibility. Cinematics were there on the table waiting for you if you were playing this in person or as a card if you were playing it in a virtual tabletop environment or if I was just doing it over Discord, I would have listed the cinematics and screenshots or snips, which I, I tended to do. But stunts... I rarely did that for some reason, and likewise I wasn't finding many directors doing the same thing. Is it possible stunts could have been also put on cards so they were nice and easy to navigate? Yes, but the card mechanic didn't seem to make much sense because you can always use the same stunts over and over again, whereas quips and cinematics by design are meant for somewhat limited use, or merely with quips you can use them something like five times before you've got to burn it. But still... There were elements of story path that I found weren't seeing use and they came from. And so when it came to the design of the quick play system, uh, chopping away some of those elements became important. It also meant that when developing or writing uh, each of the chapters that exist and they came from the RPG anthology, there was some information we no longer needed to include which meant word count was lowered, which meant we could include more information that people would actually use. And so this was a really interesting iterative process where we learned not only could we chop these away, but also it would give us more space to do other things that we really wanted to do. Story Path Ultra wasn't just kicked to the curb. Far from it. We all think it's a very strong system. But how to include it? And the simplest solution was to include it as a thorough appendix to they came from the rpg anthology because i want this game this book but yeah they they came from in general to not get lost in the i guess march of progress and i do still feel strongly that they came from is a game that you can so easily turn into a serious game and having the ultra system in there allows it encourages it it also enables those uh, directors who were a big fan of elements of the uh, they came from story path system in previous books to use elements that aren't present in the quick play system so we're trying to have our cake and eat it uh, but i think it serves the customers the players to have both sets of information so you can use whatever you like the challenge came with actually writing the genre chapters because we needed to know, are we going to be leaning on full they came from system? No, because full they came from story path system isn't presented in this book. Are we going to be leaning on quick play or are we going to be leaning on ultra? Can we have characters with tropes uh, or archetypes with tropes that suggest things from ultra? And I think in the end we concluded no. Because we want everyone to be able to refer to the quick play system. Play this out in two pages of rules and not need to get confused or have to refer to anything more cumbersome. So the ultra system is there for people who want a more complete experience. But it's also entirely optional. Which is why there's a lot of content in RPG Anthology that makes reference to things like conditions or stunts as opposed to status effects and tricks. But we'll often refer to both, uh, so condition slash status effect, because we want people to be able to choose. That was my decision, and, and I, damn it, I stand by it. I don't care what you say. So, with that said, we will now get on to what I think a lot of people are going to consider the most exciting part of this retrospective, which is talking about the genres we included. Now, I've mentioned before, I think on the Onyx Pathcast, but certainly in other interviews, that I always had difficulties wrapping my head around how to present westerns in a role-playing game. There have been several popular western RPGs. Deadlands is probably the most famous of them that has taken a sometimes problematic approach toward questions such as the Confederacy and slavery. And Deadlands has much improved on this, uh, on this score, I should note. But one of the issues Westerns as a genre have is the often complete omission of uh, people of colour, 
especially in heroic roles. Uh, and, of course, the rather uniformly negative portrayal of Native Americans. Now, is that an issue as far as they came from is concerned? I would say yes. Not because they came from can't make those changes. Obviously it can. But because they came from emulate Western movies and not the Wild West as a historical period. So when people imagine Western movies, they start thinking of Clint Eastwood, they think of John Wayne, they think of Gary Cooper, and they think of uh, getting your wagons in a circle and uh, shooting banditos and stopping the great train robbery or pulling it off, that kind of thing. I thought long and hard about how to present it for They Came From Cowboy's Gulch, which is in the RPG anthology. And to be honest, although I had racked my brain over it, it turned out the solution was pretty simple, and it was to make a mockery of those things that are so stereotypically offensive in Western movies. In a similar way to how Blazing Saddles does it, in a sense, even Deadwood, to a degree, the idea that you can actually poke fun at Western conventions is something we wanted to explore and they came from Cowboy's Gulch. It is still a fun Western game, but it is one that will actually highlight the fact that the uh, the lumbering cowboy that uh, wants to come in and set the law down on the outlaw town is, is something you can explore actually as essentially as bad guys in the setting. And there is nothing, of course, stopping you from having your character be, let's say, a Native American marshal or sheriff and essentially pointing out the injustices that exist in your society. The key is really to frame everything as comedic and satirical. Uh, this is what we try to do with They Came From, of course. And it's always tricky to do in any historical genre uh, because the vast majority of historical periods had some grave injustices taking place in them. Hell, that they exist today. And making fun of those it runs the risk of being insensitive. But I think uh, the author of that chapter, Michaela Masala, uh, myself, I think the team did a great job of approaching it with maturity, and so it makes Cowboy's Gulch one of my favourite chapters in the book. Uh, it sort of threads the needle that I was constantly getting tangled up in, if that's not mixing my metaphors too much. Now, next to Cowboy's Gulch we have They Came From The Mean Streets, Mean Streets was uh, our was an idea I wanted to pursue for a very long time, and so I am so happy it ended up in RPG Anthology. This is our noir chapter. Uh, we ended up running a, an actual play of They Came From The Mean Streets on uh, Red Moon Roleplaying, and uh, it was a huge amount of fun. There is just so much you can do with noir that I think they came from so lends itself to everything from the i guess hackneyed narration over uh your your investigator walking down the rain slicked streets to the sort of internal description of uh, of the woman the dame you can see sat at the bar or if you're the dame the uh the person you're eyeing up uh across the boudoir it's, uh, in a way, TV shows like Police Squad, movies like Naked Gun, which I mentioned, often take a noir approach. Frank Drebin has this internal monologue going in a lot of uh, that, those movies and uh, in the TV show as well. You can probably picture your mind to him driving the police, uh, driving his squad car, well, it wasn't even a, a squad car, driving his car while he's... In monologuing internally uh, about the the case and the mystery and the suspects and this is exactly the kind of thing you want to do. Noir is also an incredibly stylized genre and that really really helps with a game like they came from because there can be no doubt when you are looking at heavy cast shadows and uh, bright lights uh, contrasting against them, a slick of blood contrasting against the darkness let's say, uh, or that sort of Sin City dialed up to 11 
standard that exists for our modern view on noir, but even existed in movies as far back as The Third Man, uh, is just perfect, I think, for they came from. Brilliantly written by Chris Jones. Some of my favourite archetypes in this one, too. I think it's uh, much like Westerns, there's the risk of noir falling into uh, offensive territory, especially when it comes to gender roles. But one thing we explored in particular in the actual play we did with Red Moon Roleplaying was uh, essentially twisting that, and it worked incredibly well. Uh, the the women were pretty much, and they often are presented in noir, as, as the thinkers, the doers, the activists. I mean, you often see that through femme fatales. Um, while, whereas the men were hapless and hopeless with it, manipulated constantly. And, you know, that, that works in noir as long as you're not... I guess, objectifying every every character around. Uh, I suppose it does work if every character is being objectified as long as it isn't just the women. And that was often a risk, I would say, of noir, but not something that really came up and they came from the mean streets. I think Chris handled the material incredibly well and I'm very proud of his work on that. Uh, it's, uh, it is, again, one of my favourites. And I'll keep saying these things are my favourites. I shouldn't have a favourite, but, <coughs> you know, whenever you work on something creatively, it would be odd, I think, to not have some things that really stand out to your tastes. I mean, next we come up to, they came from Bridgeton Rectory. Now, this was one I wasn't sure about adding at first. Obviously, we got the book uh, proposed, and at the time, we proposed the sort of core genres we wanted presented in this book, and there were some that may or may not have, have ended up in it. One, for instance, that stood a very good chance all the way up to pretty much the the point when the book went into first drafts was musicals. And I kind of came down to decide that musicals, while they can be a genre, are not a genre in the way we are looking at genres through They Came From's lens, which is to say... Anything can be a musical. You know, you can have a historical epic musical, you can have a romantic musical, you can have a repo the opera, you know, you can have violent musicals, you can have camp musicals. You could make any one of these genres into a musical. So what would a they came from the musical be except for an alternative rule set? I don't think you could necessarily make archetypes for a musical. Now, that's one of those... Uh, one of the questions that's fundamental to designing any They Came From game is, can I make at least five unique archetypes that aren't already present across multiple other They Came Froms? Now, some archetypes in They Came From have been replicated and slightly tweaked. Like, we've got scientists, professors, I think doctors... Uh, and the, they are... Yes, they have their genre-specific tropes, but... Let's, we're not fooling ourselves here. We know that a scientist and a professor <laughs> in a movie fulfill many of the same functions. So, yeah, uh, Musical got dropped at the last minute, and from memory, Bridgeton Rectory was what came in. And Bridgeton Rectory was a big surprise to me, because we had mooted doing a period drama... Uh, sort of costume drama, somewhere between Georgian and Victorian, maybe Edwardian costume drama, uh, they came from genre. But again, the question for me was, where's the humour? The author of this chapter, M.K. Anderson, was just fantastic at finding that humour and all the sort of repressed sexuality, all the flirtations, all of the... Uh, coded messages given between characters, the class struggles as well. There is actually a lot of humour to be mined out of that kind of thing, both in the sense of innuendo and exploring the satire of the genre. You know, the ridiculous costumes, the ridiculous corsets, the ridiculous unrequited or requited illicit love affairs. 
these things are perfectly ripe for making fun and playing around with. And there is a certain evidence to that in other games outside of Bridgeton Rectory. I think the Regency Cthulhu is a relatively recent one. And also our own Trinity Continuum Aether shows that there's an appetite for the era, although Aether is quite distinctly late Victorian. So... Yeah, Bridgeton Rectory was a lot of fun to develop and a surprising chapter to me. It's always nice as a developer to actually come to a chapter in a book and be surprised by what you find, and pleasantly so, uh, because I went in, I guess, with certain expectations that this could be the driest of the chapters, but I think it's in many ways the smartest one. It, it again gives scope not just for one shots but entire chronicles uh, episodes of this family in this estate's many dramas this is another one we did uh, an actual play of for red moon role-playing uh, set in pre-revolutionary just pre-revolutionary russia which again a lot of fun to run uh, because that is very much my jam. And also it was a way of showing off that period dramas, costume dramas such as Bridgeton Rectory is emulating, as in Bridgerton and Downtown, Downtown Abbey, are not specific to Britain. They don't have to be at all. Uh, there's lots of media out there, uh, whether you're looking at something from, uh, let's think... Chekhov or something like it. Hell, uh, the latest, uh, one of the latest great HBO shows, I think it's HBO, The Gilded Age. Uh, you can do these things anywhere. If costumes play a big part, uh, they have a good place in Bridgeton Rectory. So then we have, they came from the Interstellar Starship. An interstellar starship is something that has been demanded by the fans for a very, very, very long time. Uh, ever since Beneath the Sea, people have been asking, when are you going to do Beyond the Stars? And my frustrated response <laughs> was always, you can already do alien invasions from space with Beneath the Sea. Don't let the title put you off. You have all the rules for aliens. You have all the rules for invasions. You have all the rules for how humans in the 1950s and 60s would deal with such a thing. But no... <laughs> that was not what people wanted. They wanted it codified. And so we ended up releasing They Came From Outer Space for as a tasty bit or a sort of micro-supplement for uh, Beneath the Sea. But it went further. People wanted to explore space opera. And so this started my mind going with, oh, okay, right, well, you can go a little further than Beneath the Sea, then it doesn't all have to be 1950s or even Star Trek, the original series, sort of jumpsuits, primary colours, and so on. Although that is certainly a way of exploring it, and we do explore that in Interstellar Starship. The author of that chapter, Kim Godwin, again, excellent work. I will keep saying excellent work, because I'm very proud of the team on this one. Uh, and... I remember when the first draft came in, it was very Star Trek-y, and I don't think that was a problem at all. Uh, it was telling the story of a certain shade of uh, space opera, but I wanted it to expand a little more, and I remember communicating this to Kim, that I wanted this to go a little more Flash Gordon, a little more Farscape, needed to be more, more bright colours, uh, or brighter colours, one could say, but I mean more in terms of a greater variety of colours. And uh, I guess a greater ability for character study, for interactions with interesting aliens, uh, and interstellar combat as well, space combat, which the initial rules for which appear in... Oh, which one? They came from the Bermuda Triangle, I think? Uh, which is, again, one of our tasty bits for Beneath the Sea. Ended up also when they came from the Danger Zone, but as jet fighting, and have subsequently appeared in this one as space fighting. It may be Bermuda Triangle, it could be Snake-filled Submarine. But anyway, Interstellar Starship was something of a no-brainer, not in the way it was written. Kim did a great job. But space opera sci-fi is such a... You ubiquitous genre. Everyone knows of it. So many role players are fans of it that it was a 
a lock for chapters in the core, well, in RPG anthology. So it ended up in there. I'm very glad it did. Now, the biggest risk was they came from the Bard's Quill, which was the last of our core genres, our first theatrical they came from genre. Uh, they came from has consistently been viewed as a sort of movie parody game, although I've often felt it doesn't simply need to be movies. And Bard's Quill is a great example of that, written by John Burke, uh, the, a frequent collaborator of mine, and again, masterfully done. I'm a massive fan of Shakespeare and classic theatre. I mean, I, I like modern theatre as well. I don't go out to the theatre enough, but if there's a Shakespeare play, I will tend to see it. And I guess I, I see them as sort of the tent poles of modern media or modern storytelling. And Bard's Quill was a way of bringing uh, They Came From down to that stage play kind of uh, role play and also to use the archaic language to burst into soliloquies occasionally or have asides with the audience to treat your environment as if it were a stage and play the game in a wholly different way. I think Bard's Quill really stands out from the rest of the chapters and by no means in a bad way uh, but simply because it has a an utterly different nature to it. If you're playing Bard's Quill, it's probably the hardest one to, I guess, naturally cross over with the other genres. But not, again, as a fault. Uh, you could, by all means, put your Galactic Marine from Interstellar Starship in the Bard's Quill. You could have a play about the people in Bridgeton Rectory. That's that's quite quite achievable. Uh, but the the strength of language used, the kinds of setups that are presented in Bard's Quill. This is also a chapter that has a silly number of new archetypes that work perfectly for this particular genre. I think I feel like there's seven or maybe eight archetypes in Bard's Quill, which is possibly the most. I think it's tied with the next chapter I'm about to talk about. Um, but yeah, Bard's Quill is definitely a standout for me. One of the most interesting ones to read, and I've, I've, I've now played it a couple of times with my local group, and some of them are big sort of amateur dramatics types, and they enjoyed it, and I think that's probably the best praise I can really look for. <laughs> if if you are a a dramatist yourself, you and you read something like They Came From The Bard's Quill, and you think it speaks to you, it makes sense to you, it evokes the genre, uh, or medium would be a better word, then that means it's done its job. They came from the billiard room with the candlestick, uh, which wins the title for the longest name, is the chapter I wrote. Uh, I hadn't intended on writing any chapters for They Came From The RPG Anthology, but when we ran our first poll, which was to determine which chapters would get added to the book, uh, as stretch goals, They Came From The Billiard Room with the candlestick ran away with the with the uh, with the votes. It seems everyone loves murder mysteries. I don't know how much of that is down to Benoit Blanc or whether people have always just loved Clue, uh, but I certainly love both, as well as Poirot and the various Agatha Christie stories, uh, all the way, you know, Sherlock Holmes, all kinds. Of, I know Sherlock Holmes isn't Agatha Christie. Uh, <laughs> uh, I remember as a very young boy watching Clue for the first time. Of course, I didn't get most of the jokes, but I just found the idea fantastic and loved the board game of Cluedo, as it's called over here. Um, so, with Billiard Room with the Candlestick, I wanted to introduce a sort of micro-system. We've done a micro-system in various of the genres, such as with Bridge and Rectory for Romance, with uh, Bard's Quill... Uh, for, of course, the stage play with Billiard Room with the Candlestick, we have with sur Solving Mysteries. Because it can't just be as easy as interrogating a suspect and knowing whether someone is telling the truth or not. And so I wrote something up for that that I'm very pleased with. And also, 
because I was feeling self-indulgent perhaps, wrote a ridiculous number of archetypes that you can actually play in this, in this book, in this particular genre. And I think it's going to be a popular one. I feel like Billiard Room with a Candlestick is a natural pairing with Beyond the Grave, because while Beyond the Grave implies horror... It also has that sort of old house on the hill quality to it. You could very easily blend the two games quite happily, I think. And it reminds me of one of my favourite Avengers episodes, the Superlative 7, where you have, uh, much like the oft-retitled Agatha Christie story, which we'll call And Then There Were None, you have a uh, group of assassins and sort of government agents all sent to a discrete location where they are steadily picked off one at a time and you have to work out which one is the killer before it's too late. I think that works brilliantly and Billiard Room with the Candlestick was such a joy to write. It's something I never talk about enough but They Came From is always fun to write and one thing I was told very early on is if you're having too much fun while you're writing it, it probably means it's no good. And I disagree with that. Uh, I think that there's sometimes the attitude that you have to take everything so very seriously when you're creating. And if you're not taking it seriously, the quality will slip. I found with Billiard Room, the candlestick, the more I enjoyed it, the more I could go back to it and think, you know what, this really holds up. So very happy with that. Now we're going to go a little off-piste because one of the uh, goals we hit with They Came From The RPG Anthology was allowing the authors to pick a genre that hadn't already been added. Uh, so we did our polls throughout the Kickstarter campaign, which maintained engagement in a wonderful way. Uh, the fans continued voting. Some of them even cheated. I'm pretty damn certain some of them cheated. But I didn't cheat enough that they came from Neo Tokyo to make it into the game, unfortunately, despite the uh, the clamouring, the demands. Uh, Neo Tokyo kept coming second in the polls. But it ended up getting to the stretch goal that allowed authors to vote for the chapter that uh, we were going to add last. And so I discussed with all of the authors who had been on the book so far and we ended up voting, it was a tight vote, for They Came From The High Octane Apocalypse, which is our Mad Max-style post-apocalyptic game with now with rigs and, uh, and trucks and tanks and basically anything you could want to emulate any of the Mad Max films, probably not Thunderdome. Um... Along with various other uh, post-apocalyptic movies, I was reminded of Doomsday, which is kind of a Mad Max north of the English border. Uh, variable quality throughout. But They Came From isn't always about good movies. It's about movies that are emblematic of a genre that people can sit down, enjoy, and sometimes enjoy somewhat mindlessly. High Octane Apocalypse leans into that heavily. So almost all of your archetypes are completely over the top. Utterly ridiculous. This is the uh, chapter that has the Leather Daddy archetype. And that is a... Uh, so I ran They Came From Camp Myrtle Lake several times. And one of the characters in the this, these games was someone called Leather Daddy. And it left such an imprint that I, Chris Jones, who authored this chapter basically said, I want to <laughs> include Leather Daddy as an archetype in High Octane Apocalypse. So who was I? Who was I to deny that? Um, so yes, Chris, who worked on They Came From The Mean Streets and High Octane Apocalypse, again, did an excellent job. One other chapter, and this was another one I was quite leery of as a developer, was voted on as part of the polls, and that was They Came From Under The Skull and Crossbones. This is a gap in my movie knowledge because I have always felt that the pirate genre, uh, which some people really acclaim and herald, is incredibly narrow and not terribly interesting. But I apparently am in the minority and that is absolutely fine because they came from under the skull and crossbones, got a lot of votes, 
And what's more, a lot of authors wanting to work on it. Uh, the author who ended up writing it, Michele Marsala, is particularly passionate about the uh, pirate movie genre and TV shows uh, with things like uh, Our Flag Means Death, of course, and uh, what was it? Is it Black Flags? And so I was able to read Under the Skull and Crossbones as a developer but also as someone who was able to look at this from a gameplay perspective rather than as a fan. And that is always an interesting way to come into something. No, it's not a bad way, again, to review a piece of work. Uh, you don't have to be an explicit fan of something to be the developer of it, although I'd suggest it often helps to be the writer of it if you have some enthusiasm for, for it. But I meant I was able to examine it from a game design perspective, and McKay again did a superb job really mixing things up in terms of the archetypes you could play, especially the tropes. The tropes in Under the Skull and Crossbones may be the best tropes in any of the they-came-from-chapters. Uh, I will also use this moment to say that in our they-came-froms uh, in RPG Anthology, we have new quips for every single archetype, and we have new cinematics, theatrics, in They Came From The Bard's Quill for every single chapter as well. No idea how we're going to end up laying that all out. Uh, I very much doubt we're going to be providing a deck unique to every single chapter, but it is testament to the great work that the writers did on this one uh, that resulted... In uh, in such a such a great array of powers that don't overlap each other, this is why I kind of see RPG anthology as a culmination, if not the end cap for they came from. Uh, again, I wouldn't want to ever write it off, and I have plenty of ideas yet, but. It becomes increasingly difficult as a game line goes on to come up with unique powers that aren't treading on the toes of a previous power or aren't a reinvention of a previous power. And I don't mind some being repeated in case there are books you don't own. Think the, I guess, archetypal, to use an overused word in this uh, recording, cinematics from beneath the sea, like deleted scene, missing reel, kill the extra... Uh, those are oh, some of the stuntman. Those are all very much tied to they came from and so can stand to appear across multiple books. But it's surprising how little they actually do. And somehow with RPG Anthology, we still provide a vast array of cinematics and theatrics without duplication. So Under the Skull and Crossbones, to go back to the tropes issue... Michaela came up with some um, remarkable uh, tropes for Under the Skull and Crossbones that really evoke that life on the high seas in Port Royale and getting involved in brawls and raids and buccaneering. It's uh, lovely stuff. So one of the other chapters we funded and voted on was they came from beneath capes and cowls. And this brought on a uh, new author to this book, Jason Inchowskis, to write up our superheroes. Now, this is one Jason and I went back and forth on quite a lot of this. This this chapter, uh, no discredit to Jason at all, it saw the heaviest amount of development. Not in the sense of me having to do rewrites, but me having to really clamp down the message of what this was. I very much saw Capes and Cowls through that lens of 1960s incredibly camp Silver Age. Jason wanted to expand it beyond that and so came up with a lot of archetypes again that could uh, not only cover a range of superhero type stories but also allow you to play supervillains which was important because we also have coming up, they came from the meticulously planned bank job and it helps to actually be able to play villains in a game like that. Um, so we needed archetypes that weren't just four colour heroes. And I mean, Jason and I discussed it at length, came up with various archetypes and of course cinematics. And one of the interesting things about this chapter is it's probably the most overpowered chapter. Probably the most overpowered they came from, or has the capacity to be. 
uh, as there are certain tropes that will enable characters to do superhuman things, they cannot be as fragile as the average protagonist. So characters in Capes and Cows are built in a slightly different way in the form of their tropes. Uh, this is something uh, that also appears in another one of the uh, They Came Froms that I'll get onto in a moment. Uh, but the cinematics likewise have an incredibly explosive feel to them that is entirely suitable to superheroism and comic book movies. Uh, I'm really pleased with how Capes and Cowls turned out because I wasn't sure. Again, not as a result of Jason's work, but because there's so much going on in the movie theatre today with superheroes that would be entirely easy to get the message, the sort of core theme muddled up. But Jason did a great job, and I was very happy to develop it. I mentioned meticulously planned bank job. That was another one that got voted on. Uh, and I think it won in place of Dawkins Creek, although there were a few genres that, that didn't make it into the book in the end, but that's the risk of polls. Um, Meticulously Planned Bank Job is another one that uh, M.K. Anderson authored, and M.K. and I, uh, and uh, this is also credit to our consulting developer on this book, Zach Naldrett, uh, came up against a bit of an obstacle in red lines for meticulously planned bank job, which was namely, is this going to be about gangster movies or is it going to be about bank heists or casino heists? Is this Ocean's Eleven or is it Goodfellas? Is it uh, The League of Gentlemen, starring a young Richard Attenborough, or is it uh, Casino or The Godfather? Because I think when we went in, we went in with a rather naive view that crime movies are crime movies and we can probably blend it all together quite easily and it would mesh. I remember Zach's feedback as consulting developer was basically that it didn't and I was uh, obliged to agree. No fault of MK's at all. It was just I think we went in with a certain uh, view that come red lines proved to not be the case. And that's fine. That's part of the redlining process, the development process. You sometimes review a manuscript and you realise, okay, this doesn't actually hang together as we intended. So what we had to do, uh, I provided some quite extensive feedback to MK on this one, and MK took it all on board and remade that chapter, remade meticulously planned bank job, to support both Ocean's Eleven and Goodfellas-style play without the two muddying each other, muddying the message. It was a really difficult one to disentangle, but uh, she did a great job of doing so, and I'm glad we spent the extra time needed to to make Meticulously Planned Bank Job the, the chapter that it can be. Now this leaves us with one more chapter, as which is appropriate because we're reaching the end of the recording, and this chapter wouldn't have been included on a bit of a prayer, a Hail Mary, as they say, there was a tier on the Kickstarter for one backer. If they wanted, they could back the book at a high figure and they would get to basically nominate any genre for inclusion in this book. Now, if they had come up with something utterly ridiculous, I would have had to speak to them and say, OK, so what, how, let's see how we can work with this. But as it happened, that backer decided they wanted to go with one of the genres that had appeared in the polls twice and never won because they were that big an enthusiast for it. And it was, they came from the Steel Dragon Tournament, or otherwise known as the Steel Dragon Fighting Tournament. This was they came from venturing away from movies exclusively, well, and theatre, I should say, so not exclusively at all, and into the world of video games, but also martial arts movies. Now, unknown to all of you, because you haven't read it yet, uh, they came from the Steel Dragon tournament does have some connectivity to they came from the Danger Zone. Uh, one of the archetypes in that is the Combat Master, so it has that martial artist, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Li theme, uh, that is connected but they came from the Steel Dragon tournament is m certainly more explicitly video game fighters than movie fighters uh, 
and that is by intent. Eddie Webb authored this chapter. Again, you, well, you'll know who Eddie is, of course, if you've ever listened to an episode of the Onyx Pathcast before, as long as it's not just this one. But I know... Well, I was at the UK Games Expo with Eddie in uh, June 2023, or maybe late May 2023, and we were discussing how would you actually make Steel Dragon Tournament work. And the ideas he came up with right there and then were wonderful because he pitched to me that essentially this, this cannot be a game where it can just be one person fighting one person all the time it can't be a game where your combat prowess is purely basically down to your close combat skill it, otherwise everyone's just going to put all their dots in close combat and might aren't they and he explained how beating a computer, for instance, if you needed to get information out of a computer, if you, if you were by beating a robot, you're more likely to have to use something like intellect and technology to know how to weaken the robot. And his ideas, as they came spilling forth, really made Steel Dragon Tournament come alive. And wouldn't you know it, a backer paid to include that genre. So all of a sudden I was able to say to Eddie, you know those ideas you were coming up with at UK Games Expo, would you actually like to write them? And he said yes, and so they did. Now, I don't believe backers, backers won't have seen Beneath Capes and Cows, Meticulously Planned Bank, Job Steel Dragon, Skull and Crossbones, or High Octane, Apocalypse, or Billiard Room with a Candlestick yet. But I'm very much looking forward to when they do because these are some wonderfully written chapters, and Steel Dragon, in particular, I am so very proud of, because it shows some of the real lengths that they came from can go to, whether you want to see it as a emulator of the Mortal Kombat movie, or of a Street Fighter video game, uh, we put in a lot of references, of course, to the games we like, but also those martial arts movies we enjoy too. And, yeah, I, I think Eddie and all of the other authors who I have mentioned, uh, I don't think I've omitted anyone, and if I have, my apologies, just did stellar work. Stellar work throughout. So kudos to all of you. So I appreciate I'm over the hour. But I wanted to just quickly talk about the Kickstarter in general because, as I mentioned, the polls kept the backers engaged. Polls always do. Some people would back the Kickstarter campaign for they came from the RPG anthology and they would say, well, the chapter I wanted isn't going to be included now, so I'm not going to back anymore. You've actually killed my enthusiasm for the book. And I shouldn't laugh, uh, but I will. Uh, one of our frequent colleagues once made the very incisive statement that sometimes you can fold a, uh, you can you can pass someone a fifty dollar bill and say it's yours for free, but if you fold it the wrong way, they'll still complain. Uh, or words to that effect. It was said in a much more eloquent way than I can recall offhand. And I found this with Dark Eras, Dark Eras 2 for Chronicles of Darkness as well, that sometimes people will be so put off by not getting a thing than the, than, that they will essentially become blind to, the, to all the things they are getting. I remember speaking to a big fan of Mage the Awakening once, and Mage the Awakening is a great game, and they said, why would I pick up Dark Eras when all I ever want to play is Mage the Awakening? There's only two chapters in this book that have mages in, so that means eight chapters, or however many, are useless to me. And I always find that viewpoint a bit disappointing. Obviously everyone's welcome to their opinion, but at the same time, it is disappointing, it is disheartening to me as a creative if I see, if I hear, if I know someone has decided to not support a game because it isn't entirely the thing they're looking for. And so I know there are some people who, with RPG Anthology, they actually commented to say, because I lost in this poll, I'm no longer going to back. Uh, 
never mind the fact they may actually like westerns or they may like space opera or they may like Shakespearean theatre because Neo-Tokyo didn't get in as an example. Uh, therefore, they won't be, ba be backing anymore. I find it a little reductive, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I am being honest. And I would encourage anyone, if you're listening to this, to instead of saying, well, there's 11 games I'm not going to play here, but one I will, or worse that effect. I think it would be 10 and 1, in fact. Well, pick it up for the one you want, and maybe give the other ones a go. Because RPG Anthology ended well above its funding target, which is fantastic, that's what we wanted. Uh, and yet, it still... Uh, this will sound like a complaint, and it isn't, because any time we overcome our funding target on Kickstarter or on any crowdfunding campaign, it is a success. Believe me, listeners, if we exceed 100% of our target, we have succeeded. We've done everything we set out to do. Anything else is, well, it's not gravy because we have to fund more books being produced, and sometimes we have to fund more stretch goals being produced. But it is all good. And this game most definitely did that. And yet I am sometimes forced to consider would more people have backed it if it was exclusively a Western? Would more people have backed it if it was exclusively a noir? Or exclusively a post-apocalyptic game? Or superheroes? Or whatever? And I hope that that isn't the case because I think that you stand the risk of missing out on an awful lot of very good stuff if you do take the view of well I'm only interested in bank heists as this game has got a martial arts option in I'm not going to be taking it up it's a little like not picking up they came from because you don't like comedy uh, there's a lot of material in there that can be played with complete seriousness and it is a completely functioning system with completely functioning antagonists. Hell, we've got a lot of antagonists in this game. Anyway, so I, I look back on the Kickstarter and I can look back on it and I think I am happy, I'm satisfied, we overcame our funding target, we funded more stretch goals than we could shake a stick at, a very generous backer allowed us to add yet another chapter. All in all... It's a book that has done very, very well, and I cannot complain about that. What I will say, listeners, is if you know anyone who likes any of these genres and you think would like to roleplay them, point them toward the Backer Kits campaign, where they can still pre-order RPG Anthology. They will be getting a lot of bang for their buck. There's a lot of material in this game. It is an RPG Anthology, as the name implies. So with that said, I don't have much more left to add. Right now we're in the process of things like art direction, and the book is now fully edited, so yeah, uh, we will just have to wait and see what it looks like, but I have every confidence it's going to be as beautiful as the other they came from, and uh, that means it will be very pretty indeed. Thank you so much, all of you, for listening really appreciate it. I know it can be a bit a little odd, jarring, when there's only one host, especially if he has a bit of a cold like I do. Sorry if there's been any sniffing or wiping of the nose. <laughs> uh, sadly uh, necessary at some point. But I do appreciate it, and I especially appreciate it if you've given RPG Anthology uh, a look over on Backer Kit since the Kickstarter ended. Any support you can provide is hugely appreciated. So if you want to find me and speak to me about They Came From The RPG Anthology, head on over to matthewdawkins.com or to the Onyx Path Discord, where I am always lingering around, happy to answer questions if you have any. Uh, one of the most popular questions is, do you think we will revisit the chapters that weren't voted in in a future book? I don't know. We'll have to see. If you are enthusiastic for that kind of thing, you'll have to ask. You'll have to say, make yourself known. We don't know unless you tell us. And that is very important. That's why Onyx Path is such a communicative company. We always speak to the fans on our Discord, on our blog, elsewhere. So do reach out if there is something you want to see from They Came From and we will be happy to listen. Anyway, many worlds, one podcast. <laughs>